that if you're going to argue for sola anything in scripture, the only thing you can argue for is sola tradition, because that is what Paul calls the pillar and foundation of truth. It's what Jesus instituted when he chose Peter to be the head of a church. I saw an article today that said that Egyptians, the country of Egypt, they're claiming that there are no longer any crocodiles left in their country. And I was thinking about it and I was like, I, I just, I think they're in denial. Take a second with that one. It's pretty cringy, but I really like it. Welcome everyone to episode 131. So great to be back with you. If you're a first time listener or a long time listener, thank you. But especially if you're first time, make sure you rate and review this podcast after you hear it. It helps others find it. And if you've never done that before, please go and do, stop this podcast. Stop listening. Go and do that right now. What have you been waiting for? Um, find all of our content on manafoodforthought.com. And while you're there, you can click on the Patreon tab to become a financial sponsor for this podcast for as little as $1 a month. But you will also find all of our blog content, connections to our social media, all of our cringy old vlogs, great stuff. Um, And while you're there, uh, you can leave comments on any of it. And you can share this episode or any episode with uh, your friends or family that you think would benefit from it. And if you do, especially if you do it on social media, make sure you tag us at manafoodforthought on Instagram at mana f the number four t on twitter so without further ado let's get into our joy junk and jesus my joy this past week is that my wife and i uh got to see hamilton at the seagersham center it was our it was my anniversary present to her our anniversary was like two months yeah two months ago uh but i surprised her with these tickets in the front row um which was just really magical but um what made it extra joyful and another Jesus and a Jesus moment for us was that, um, well, this wasn't the joyful part, but Erica's parents who were going to watch the kids, uh, her dad is very sick. Uh, he's a really bad cold. And so they were not able to come down and they've been gone all last week and our schedule got all crazy this coming week. Our schedule got all crazy. That's been kind of the junkie part, but it's been okay. But, um, we thought like we weren't going to be able to go. We we're asking a few friends and people. And then all of a sudden, like a couple of different people said, yes. Uh, and so super, super grateful to our friends, Luke and Audrey for watching our kiddos, um, so that we could go and do that. And we had a really, really great time. So shout out to you guys for bringing some joy into our life. Um, my wife and I both were in theater in high school. We both love going, uh, to the theater. So that was really cool to have that time together and to do something we both love. My junk, as I said, was, um, you know, sickness, chaotic schedules. Um, you know, we had to take my wife's car in for a recall, like all those kind of like just, meh, you know, kind of things. But <clears throat> my voice, I think, is, is almost fully recovered from being really thrashed by the cold that I had. And um, our schedule this week still a little, you know, off without the in-laws, but I think we've got it all worked out, and hopefully this will be, you know, the last of it. So continue to pray for my father-in-law uh, for his healing because he's had this cold for a while, and it has really, really taken him out, probably the worst sickness he's had ever since I've known him. So, uh, yeah. And then my Jesus moment, um, like I said, people coming to, uh, our aid to watch our kids. But I think in the midst of these past last week and this week, my prayer that I've been praying and that I find is consistently answered by God is just asking God to like stretch time or find a way to, to fit in all of the different things that are going on. Um, and he just continues to do that. So, yeah, it's just really great. Uh, oh, and one last joy is that um, 
we took down all of the artwork pretty much in our whole house, patched, painted, fixed a bunch of stuff around the house, and we're going to completely like redecorate. We've got a bunch of new pictures and stuff, and so we're really excited to do that. My wife and I love doing that kind of stuff too, so that's very exciting. So um, for our episode, I want to begin this, this uh, I don't know, weekly process of turning to the second reading for that upcoming Sunday. And the second reading really coalesces with something that I just gave a teaching on that I think will be really useful, and that um, is the fact that this second reading from 1 Timothy 3.14 all the way to chapter 4, verse 2, part of it is commonly used by Protestants or non-Catholics as an argument for sola scriptura, which is Latin for the belief that scripture alone is our teaching authority and source of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, that we can turn to no one else, no other authority, no you know human tradition, no church tradition, nothing. Uh, only if it's in the Bible, we can believe it. If it's not in the Bible, we don't believe it. That's what Sola Scriptura says. Now, as Catholics, we don't believe that. We believe also in tradition, and we don't believe that you can find evidence for the doctrine of Sola Scriptura anywhere in Scripture. Um, and so we're going to talk about that because this... Uh, passage contains a verse that's commonly used to argue for that. Um, and I think it's important, especially recently I did, the, you know, the one on the difference between Protestants and Catholics and how we view salvation and justification, faith and works. I think it's important to kind of have this knowledge because these little nuanced things maybe aren't talked about or maybe aren't talked about or taught as in-depth in our formation. Uh, and then we get questions from very well, um, very knowledgeable and articulate Protestant um, friends or family members or people we may encounter, it can be very overwhelming and we can feel like, oh, I must be wrong. Um, when in reality, we just don't know the, the fullness of the Catholic perspective or teaching on that. So here is the, uh, the reading for this Sunday, the second reading. It says, Beloved, remain faithful to what you have learned and believed, because you know from whom you learned it, and that from in infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are capable of giving you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture, here's the part that often gets quoted, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that one who belongs to God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in, and his kingly power, proclaim the word, be persistent, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, convince, reprimand, encourage through all patience and teaching. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, <clears throat> again, great passage and nothing, obviously, that we would disagree with as Catholics because we agree with everything that's in the Bible that Jesus revealed, obviously. But we have to read what this passage is actually saying. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching. Absolutely, it is. Nowhere in this does it say that Scripture is the sole authority. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the passage, Paul is talking about remaining faithful to what you have learned and believed because you know from whom you learned it. He's talking about him passing on teachings, traditions, oral tradition, verbal teachings not written down in Scripture to Timothy. And then he says, and that from infancy you have known the sacred Scriptures. So he's, he's comparing here, and, and putting alongside one another the teachings he gave to Timothy in this new revelation of Jesus Christ and sacred scripture. Now, a distinction here, anytime sacred scriptures is mentioned in the Bible, what they mean is the Old Testament. Because as they're writing this in the New Testament, you know, there, there was no 
formulae, formalized list of the books of the New Testament that were being circulated. These letters were still being written. They were still being circulated. Other letters and gospels were being written at different times or for different purposes, not all of which made it into our current New Testament. Uh, and so all of that was happening as a process of oral tradition and people teaching things that um, were not part of what they would consider the sacred scriptures, which were the Old Testament. So for the first several hundred years of the church, yes, some things were written down, but things were passed down by oral tradition through the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles. It's clear in Matthew 16 that Jesus gives intentional authority to Peter. He says in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He sets up later a system in Matthew 18 that if you have to correct a brother, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've won him over. If not, take two or three others with you so that their testimony may establish every fact. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. So he's intending here, two chapters later, he's intending that what he did with Peter is going to institute an organization, a church, a community that you can bring issues to for guidance, for teaching, and for direction. So he intended that. And he continues to give that authority um, to the apostles. He gives you know them the authority to forgive sins um, in John 20. And in John 20 and in John 21, there's a similar postscript to the end of those both of those uh, chapters. Uh, John 20, uh, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And it goes on. And then it's kind of repeated in John 21. There are also many other things that Jesus did. But if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. So it's clear that Scripture says not everything that Jesus taught is in Scripture. Okay, not everything that Jesus taught is in Scripture. What is in Scripture is what people thought the followers of Jesus, the first apostles and disciples, thought was most relevant and important from the revelation of Jesus to be able to share the good news with others so they would know that Jesus is the Messiah, believe that he is the Son of God, receive the gift of salvation that he won for us on the cross and to live that out by belonging to the church, by doing good works and to responding to the, uh, the missionary call that he places on all of us. That was the intent of writing these letters. You know, Paul wrote letters to all these different churches in Corinth and in Rome and in Philippi and Thessalonica and Colossae and Galatia and all these, or to people like Titus or to Timothy or Philemon uh, so that they would be guided in the churches that had already been established. He went uh, most of the time. Some of the times he wrote to, to churches that he just knew about, that he never visited. But most of the time, these were churches he had visited or that he had helped establish. And he had passed on to them these teachings. And he's writing later to help correct certain disputes or um, vices or improper practices or understandings of what he taught them and try and continually guide them. Okay, so it's important to know that that was the purpose of Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture did Jesus ever tell anyone to write anything down. Nowhere. Nowhere did he tell anyone to write anything down. Nowhere in is, is church tradition condemned or forbidden. There are a few places which we'll talk about where human traditions of the Jewish elders are condemned by Jesus because they're, uh, they're called the traditions of the elders. They're these rules that the Pharisees enacted that they were imposing on people that were not in the Torah. 
or they were in the Torah, but they were only for priests. And now they're trying to get them to apply to all people. And they're being very scrupulous about these ancillary rules that they've kind of created, but they're ignoring the fundamental rules of the Torah. And Jesus condemns those things. And there's another place where Paul is exhorting early Christians to not fall prey to the human traditions of false teachers, telling them that they have to do certain things that Jews do, that they have to resort to certain food laws and ritual purity laws that the Jews still practice. That, if you read those those statements in context, which are the only, I think there's those only three. Um, in fact, I'll just tell you what they are right now. Matthew 15, 3, Mark 7, 7. Uh, those are the two where Jesus condemns human traditions. Um, he says things like, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And so Protestants will quote that and say, like, you are not obeying what's in Scripture, and you are looking to some earthly institution for your guidance. And usually when they say you're not obeying Scripture, it's a misunderstanding of what the church teaches. But they're applying this to the church, when in reality it was applying to extra laws from the Jewish law, part of the Jewish pharisaical system of the Torah, that Pharisees were adding on to the people. That's what Jesus is condemning. Um, and then the one that Paul um, is talking about, do not see that no one captivate you with an empty seductive philosophy according to human tradition. Um, notice that empty seductive philosophy, meaning it's drawing them away from the things that he taught them. Again, he's preaching against false prophets and teachers. They're preaching about food laws and practices that were not part of the Christian gospel. So if you read Colossians in its context, you'll see that. If you read the wider passage of Matthew uh, 15 or Mark 7 in its context, you'll see that that's, um, you know, the issue there. So um, why is this um, something that we're talking about, first of all? Uh, well, I think it's important because I think sometimes we forget, like, where the Bible came from. I think sometimes a lot of Christians think that, like, Jesus, he died, he rose from the dead, and he's about to ascend into heaven, and he's like, all right, go and baptize. Oh, by the way, and he pulls out from his cloak, like, here's everything you need to know with a fully formed and bounded Bible. Like, that's not how it happened. You know, the, the Bible, the writings of Scripture, were being passed on orally, you know, for generations. It Paper was very expensive. I think I heard somewhere, like, to write First Corinthians— would have cost Paul, I think, the equivalent of like $2,000 in today's money uh, to get all the materials and write all of that. And, you know, just one copy of it, just one copy. And yet these letters were being circulated. And so what happened was people would read them in Corinth and there was good practices in that. And so they started sharing those or copying them as best they could and sharing those with other communities. Now, I know you might be thinking like, oh, that means there's all this room for error and stuff like that with the copying. This is a culture who oral tradition was paramount. Like you learned from the age of five, you began memorizing the Torah. And all the way from five to 13, the best students would continue studying. They would memorize the Torah. They would memorize the entire Old Testament. And this is at a time when these cultures and a lot of other ancient cultures surrounding them had such a primacy for oral tradition, the art of storytelling and passing on these different, um, what would you call them, um, histories of their people that in some cultures, not in Jewish cultures, but in some ancient cultures, if you got even one word or pause wrong, that was a crime punishable by death. It was something that was so sacred and paramount to their culture. It's not like us today. We're distracted by so many things. We get things wrong all the time. You play the game of telephone. And so we think that's what happens 
we, we apply that 2,000 years in the past to things like translations and things like, you know, how do they possibly remember what Jesus said and writing it down years later? It's these things were being circulated, and the art of memory and recitation, repetition, was something that rabbis taught their disciples, that disciples repeated these teachings of Jesus. They probably would have had many, many of the things that he said memorized even before he died. And he even taught them certain things to pray and repeat, like the Lord's Prayer. These are things that they would have committed to memory. And so uh, the Bible didn't just come out of nowhere. It was, an, it was a, a fruit and a result of church tradition. Tradition was necessary because these were still being written. They had not yet been codified into the what we now know as the New Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament. The earliest clear listing we have of these that in its entirety— is a list from Athanasius of Alexandria in the year 367. Okay, that's 334 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That's how long these things were being questioned, circulated by oral tradition, copied. Other things were out there being copied and recited. However, there were similar lists. There, The earliest was um, around the year 170. And these lists are not complete but they have maybe like 20 plus of the books in the New Testament uh, and, and not any extras usually. Um, so uh, the earliest is about 170. I think that was Clement of Alexandria. There's one from Origen that's almost totally complete in the year 250. So it's clear that they kind of had a sense from the very you know first century of the church, what were the books that were valid, that actually taught what was authentic. Um, you know, we believe as Catholics that public revelation, like everything that we need to know that needs to be taught uh, and that all our doctrine is based on, that all of that ended with the death of the last apostle. And that was probably uh, John was the last apostle to die of old age, probably somewhere around the year 90 to 100, somewhere in there. And all of these, depending on when you date them, all of the works of the New Testament were written before then. And I tend to side with um, some earlier dating based on some details in a revelation in some of the last books that were written, that all of them were written uh, before the year 70 and the, when uh, Jerusalem was um, destroyed by the Romans. And so that's all within 40 years of Jesus. But from 40 years, so, you know, let's say the year 70, all the way to 367, that's still almost 300 years that these things were not fully codified, not fully put into the form of the Bible that we know now. And they were paired with the Old Testament. And, you know, the Old Testament had a Hebrew text, it, the Masoretic text. It had the, um, the Septuagint, the Greek text. We use the Septuagint Greek text, which has seven more books, because that's what Jesus quoted most often. And it was what was um, promulgated and commonly used at the time of Jesus, because Greek was part of the, you know, the local vernacular for a lot of people. It was a trading language because of the empire of Alexander the Great that had spread, um, you know, a few centuries before that. So anyways, all of this to say... Um, we cannot look to the Bible and find anywhere where the Bible would support sacred, uh, sola scriptura. I quoted those, those few areas where uh, people might use the Bible to refute tradition. Uh, he, and the second reading that you heard, all scriptures inspired by God, you have known the sacred scriptures, you know, from 2 Timothy 3.14 uh, through 17. That's commonly used. But again, it doesn't say it's the only authority. It doesn't even say it's a teaching authority. Like, it doesn't even use the word authority. It just says it's useful for teaching. There are a lot of things that are useful for teaching. You know, parables, abacuses, you know, but it's not like we're looking at an abacus to divine, you know, when the world's going to end or something like that. Okay? So it's not that specific. 
Uh, two other places where this is uh, often argued from for sola scriptura on the part of Protestants is uh, John seventeen seventeen, where it says, Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. But again, it does not say that the word is the only source of truth or authority. It doesn't even say authority. It just says it is truth. And we, and we do believe that scripture is without error, that it was written by men but inspired by the Holy Spirit so that it contains no error in matters of theology or doctrine. Okay? There are contradictory things. There are things in Scripture that are immoral, things that good people did that were not right, and that doesn't justify them, but it means that there is no error in matters of theological interpretation. Okay, And then lastly, Hebrews 4.12, where it says, Indeed, the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. And again, you probably caught on at this point. Yes, it says that Scripture is living and effective. It is sharper. It pierces us. But again, it is not the only thing that does that, and it doesn't even say that it is a teaching authority. So I really don't know where this argument holds any kind of substantial ground for people because... Uh, there's nowhere in Scripture where it says that this that Scripture is a uh, a authority. First of all, even though it is, uh, nor does it say that it is the only authority anywhere. Doesn't even allude to that. Okay, so we talked about what Protestants will then throw back at human tradition, but let's talk about all the places in Scripture where tradition is supported or where sola scriptura might be refuted. There's a couple interesting passages that show that actually this was something that the Jews relied on, as I referenced, uh, that they had this art of tradition, sacred tradition, uh, in things like the Mishnah, which was a, a rabbinical commentary that was constantly added to, uh, and I think that was actually put all together I think uh, in the year 100, I can't remember BC or AD, but uh, has all these extra teachings of rabbis based on the Old Testament writings. And they would often quote these things or teachings of rabbis as if they were scripture or as if they were prophecies. So here's an example of that. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, um, it's talking about the early days of Jesus. And it says, uh, Jesus went and dwelt in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And you've probably heard that prophecy before. Guess what? That prophecy is nowhere in the Old Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere. This is, however, a matter of rabbinical tradition that had been passed down from something that was outside of sacred scriptures, but it was still believed by the Jews to be true. Okay, we have other places where we have examples of this. On uh, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is condemning. He begins this big condemnation of the Pharisees. Um, if you want to hear sassy, upset, sarcastic, angry Jesus, go read Matthew 23 in its entirety, and you'll be like, hmm, preaching fire right there. But he says something um, in the very beginning of this. He spoke to the crowds and the disciples, and he says, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you, but do not follow their example, for they do not preach what they practice, for they preach, but they do not practice. So it's clear that there was something called the seat or chair of Moses that had authority that people respected and that Jesus himself acknowledged. However, even though there's some legitimate binding authority based on this, that phrase or idea is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. It is found in the what was originally oral, but was then written down, that work called the Mishnah which teaches a sort of teaching succession from Moses on down through uh, up through the Pharisees. Um, another example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verses 1 through 4, Paul is talking about the fact that um, all these people were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea from the Exodus. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about the manna in the desert, the water from the rock. And then it says, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was the Christ. Paul has this reference here. There's no reference in the Old Testament of a rock following them around, but rabbinical tradition does have a story about that um, and, you know, kind of uses that characterization of the rock. Okay, so it's showing that they are relying on oral tradition as having a teaching authority that is equal to Scripture because it shows up in the New Testament. Okay, and then lastly, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so they also opposed the truth. People of depraved mind, unqualified in the faith. These two men, we have no reference to them anywhere in the Old Testament, in Exodus, anywhere else in the Old Testament. Janus and Jambres, no clue who they are, but it was common knowledge. So there's obviously these other stories and traditions that are being passed down. And scripture, as it's written and as it's quoted, and the authority that we give to it, has a reliance on tradition and is set next to tradition as equal in authority for matters of teaching, for things that people memorized and were quoting even in the era of the New Testament. And so how do we know that um, above all of that, that sola scriptura is not, uh, tra- is not scriptural? Uh, because of all of the places where tradition is praised or encouraged in scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 2. Paul says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I handed them on to you. He doesn't say, hold on to the scriptures. He does say uh, in this letter of mine in in another place or something like that, but he is holding up the oral tradition that he passed on to them as the means of authority that they are meant to uh, live their lives according to, the teaching authority that they're meant to keep in mind when it comes to living out their life as disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, first Corinthians, or first, sorry, First Thessalonians two thirteen, um, Paul says this. This is really interesting. He says, "And for this reason, we too give thanks to God unceasingly, that in receiving the word of God from hearing us, you received not a human word, but it truly is the word of God, which is now at work in you who believe." So he's telling them that what we told you, the human words we gave you that you heard. They were the words of God. I mean, that is a very, like, you wouldn't then assume like, oh, we can ignore that, right? Because you didn't write it down. No, like when Paul is referencing the things that he taught them, they're not all in the letters he's writing. He's telling them, remember what we taught you. And here's some corrections that are needed based on things that we've heard about the struggles that you have in starting your new church community. That's what the purpose of the letters of the, the New Testament were of Paul. So he's not going to reiterate absolutely everything that he taught them. Uh, You're not going to get the fullness of the gospel message or everything that Paul taught those churches in those letters. You're going to get letters that are, that are directed to addressing the particular problems that community is having and maybe reminding them of some of the teachings he gave in reference to those or clarifying certain things, but you're not going to get the entirety. He lived in some places for, for years, like two or three years. And the letters we have are a few chapters. You know, I think Ephesus, he lived for almost three years. And Ephesus, I think, is six chapters. Like, that's not everything he taught them. It's the issues that they were facing when he wrote them the letter. Okay? Uh, In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Therefore, brothers, stand firm, hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, 
either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. Here, equating, putting parallel both the written letter, which becomes sacred scripture in the New Testament, and oral tradition, verbal things that he wrote. If those things weren't different, he wouldn't make the distinction. If everything he taught ended up in the letter, he wouldn't need to isolate oral tradition or an oral statement. He would just say, pay attention to the letter. That's it. Okay? And then this is repeated later on in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. He says, we instruct you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to shun any brother who conducts himself in a disorderly way and not according to the tradition they received from us. So these oral traditions and teachings that they are passing on, not in writing, but orally, they are to be an authoritative um, measuring rod up against people's behavior is judged. And that really is what the church function was, what Jesus instituted the church to do, was to have a group of people who had authority, who knew his teachings, who could enact them, share them, live them out, and provide clarity when people had questions, and continue to teach all that Jesus taught. Lastly, this I think is the nail you know, hits the head of the nail in the coffin on Sola Scriptura. This is from 1 Timothy 3.15. I am writing to you about these matters, although I hope to visit you soon. But if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Paul here calls the church Not a pillar or foundation of truth, the pillar and foundation of truth. Meaning that if you're going to argue for sola anything in scripture, the only thing you can argue for is sola tradition, because that is what Paul calls the pillar and foundation of truth. It's what Jesus instituted when he chose Peter to be the head of a church that he founded, gave him the powers to bind and loose, and extended that to the apostles in John 20 to forgive sins, to retain sins, and they used that authority an authoritative structure made up of bishops, priests, and deacons that you read in the pages of the New Testament in order to run, organize, and grow this church community. And when issues befell them, they came to the church, who Peter, of which, was at the head. He is always, people always are deferring to his authority. Now, Paul will sass Peter or tell him he did something wrong because that's the principle of fraternal correction. You know, everyone is, uh, no one's perfect. Everyone is open to correction. We don't believe that the Pope is infallible and can never sin. We just believe that there is a doctrine of papal infallibility, meaning the Pope, when he chooses to, in matters of faith and morals, can teach infallibly without error because of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So all of that being said, Scripture makes more of an argument to honor tradition because Scripture itself is a fruit of tradition, but also in the pages of Scripture and in the ways that we see the presence of Jewish tradition showing up in the New Testament— and having this authoritative uh, teaching, um, I guess, modality or pedagogy that is equivalent to things that were considered scripture, we can conclude that sacred scripture and sacred tradition are equal and both necessary sources of divine authority. That's where we look for guidance. And so there are certain Catholic teachings that you will not find directly quoted in Scripture. You'll find evidence of them. Like, for instance, you won't find the word purgatory in Scripture, but you will find many references to people making atonement for the dead, praying for the living and the dead, uh, being refined but only as through fire before they pass into the next life, all of these different things. You will find um, 
you know, many other doctrines, like doctrines of Mary, Mary being assumed into heaven, body and soul. That's nowhere in Scripture. That's a matter of sacred tradition that was believed and promulgated from the very earliest days of the Church. Even things like Mary's perpetual virginity or immaculate conception, there are scriptural keys to that. When you read it in the original Greek, there are certain words that we say, oh, that's what that means. That's why it's a clue there that, you know, Mary— Hail Mary, hail favored one, the Lord is with you. When the angel Gabriel says that to Mary, in the original Greek, it says, hail one who has already been filled with grace. That's the tense, or who has previously been filled with grace. So that's one scriptural piece of evidence for the Immaculate Conception. Um, Knowing that the word brothers in reference to the brothers of Jesus uh, doesn't mean blood brother, it can mean relative. Uh, can be an indicator that Mary's perpetual virginity was a teaching, but those things came from sacred tradition, and you can find them in earliest writings of the Church. And so if you have questions or want to know more about sacred tradition, you want to know more about the teachings of the apostles, a a few books that I would recommend. One is called the Didache, and the Didache was written probably as early as the year 70, even before the fall of, um, of Jerusalem. And it is a compendium. It's very, very short. It's a compendium of the teachings of the 12 apostles. And it's basically like, it's basically a handbook on how to be an early Christian uh, based on what the apostles were teaching. And remember, this is before all of scripture was written. This is like the core central message. Scripture, uh, apart from that, then was written to talk more about the narrative life of Jesus, why he did what he did, show more about of his miracles and his teachings, and to, to give a history of how the church developed, and then to give letters to all of those different churches or areas or groups of people or individuals who were struggling or needed particular guidance. Um, but bringing it all down to like what is actually necessary to be a Christian and what is the message that we are promoting here, that you can find in the Didache, uh, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Uh, And the best book, I think, for um, the Church Fathers, Church Tradition, uh, the teachings of the Apostles and the teachings of the Church Fathers, what things were believed from the very first centuries of the Church, and we have in writing even before we have the New Testament fully assembled at the end of the 4th century, those are the writings of the Church Fathers, and you can find a really good compendium of them uh, that's organized really well in the book The Fathers Know Best by Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers. So highly recommend both of those uh, works. You should check them out. I hope this was useful for you. I hope it helps you maybe in your conversation with other people when people have questions about what the Catholic Church believes and they might accuse uh, you know, the Catholic Church of, oh, those are just human traditions. You're not believing what's in Scripture. Scripture says this, that only Scripture is this authority. You know, uh, apart from that, you know, if Scripture is the only authority, then, then how can you rely on what anyone says? Because I can go to a certain denomination uh, that doesn't have a centralized teaching text like we do in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So say, for example, a Methodist. I can go to two different Methodist churches on two different Sundays and hear totally contradictory messages about the same passage, if they happen to be teaching on the same passage, because they don't have a lectionary, as far as I know. So there are very few hierarchically organized Uh, bodies of religions that actually have written down their doctrines and teach you, you know, tell you exactly what their church believes. Uh, And the only one that traces its lineage back to Jesus Christ himself and that that aligns with actually what happened historically is the Catholic Church. And so I hope that's edifying for you, encouraging for you. If you have other questions about this or want me to do a follow-up episode, uh, let me know. You can find uh, ways to contact me, as I said, on the website, manafoodforthought.com. Love hearing from you, but that's all I have for you this week. Until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless.